Sephora stores are everywhere you are. So just pop in when you need a brown lip to match your 90s playlist, a confidence boost before your interview, or a last-minute gift for mom's birthday. There's always a Sephora near you. Just pop in. Use our store locator to find your local Sephora or Sephora at Kohl's. Local agencies assisted us as well, and uh, obviously they use their resources. Uh, we also entered her in the National Criminal Information Center as a missing and endangered person and the uh, Center for Missing and Exploited People. Um, yep. So we wasted some national resources as well. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, Chief, but you did great work in finding out the truth of this matter. matter. Chief Devin Holland, thank you so much. And that does it for us tonight. Banfield starts right now. Everybody and welcome to the program. It's great to have you here with us tonight. Um, I have a big exclusive story for you tonight. It was something that kind of fell into my lap. Kind of the thing that falls into your lap that you need to wipe off. So I'm going to share that with you in a moment. It's about BTK. We've been following the ongoing developments with the Bind Torture Kill serial killer Dennis Rader. They were digging up his old home uh, for clues about trinkets to a new cold case of a 16-year-old cheerleader. That's been the big news up until now. But uh, in our investigation of this, we discovered something um, sort of unusual and very gross. And it, it is that Dennis Rader has had a big spat, a big throwdown in his prison. Uh, got into it, blew a gasket with an artist. Blew a gasket with an artist whom he had requested paint a portrait of him, the serial killer, in blood. Let that sink in for a moment. Dennis Rader requested an artist do a portrait of him. In blood. You are about to hear from the artist. Uh, he will tell you what it was that set Dennis Rader off, that made him freak out, and what ultimately ended up happening, how the portrait was made, and whose blood was used. Yes, it was done in blood. You're also going to see the portrait, and you're going to see the letter from Dennis Rader um, corresponding with this artist. And then like I said, this sort of all fell in my lap. It was very unusual as we were investigating this. We also came to understand that this artist and another artist collaborated on another serial killer's uh, piece of work. And that serial killer was Charles Manson, um, whose you know, recent coverage included uh, the, the funeral that was held by his grandson, where all these people attended and did their thing to memorialize Charles Manson in the casket. And then got ashes when they were spreading the ashes and took the ashes and did things like masks and tattoos and art. Well, it turns out that this same artist who had the throwdown with Dennis Rader about the portrait in blood also has done portraits in blood of Charles Manson and recently uh, collaborated with another artist to make a shrunken head of Charles Manson using Charles Manson's ashes and his hair. You're going to see all of it. You're going to hear from the artist as well as the artist he collaborated with. So all of that is coming your way in just a moment. Don't go anywhere because this is really unique stuff, especially the fight that uh, ensued with Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, over this whole portraited blood business. So then also um, in serial killer news, the Gilgo Beach serial killer suspect, Rex Hewerman, 
It turns out that police have been very, very busy since the arrest of Rex. And it's not so much that they've been asking Rex what he's up to in, in, in his prison cell. They have been conducting interviews in jail cells of sex workers. Like when a sex worker gets booked in, they come in with a photograph and they show this guy's face and they ask, you ever done anything with this one before? You're about to hear some of the sordid stories of sex workers who say, oh, I recognize him and yes, I have done business with him. You'll also hear what kind of business he did to them and how five of them have now been helpful in the investigation. Just fascinating stuff like the the investigative techniques of sex workers booked in. Rex Huerman was busy with sex workers right up until his to his arrest, the police say. All the questions they ask of the sex workers, it's sort of mind-blowing that this is yielding a lot of helpful information, the police say. And then there's this mystery in the Colorado mountains that we want to bring to you tonight. We touched upon it earlier. Um, a 34-year-old young woman by the name of Melissa Whitsitt, she went out to Winter Park, Colorado, because it's gorgeous, right? It's beautiful. There's a fantastic ski resort. It's beautiful in the summer, fall, winter. It's beautiful all year long. She went out to work at the Winter Park Ski Resort. And just one day didn't show up for work. That didn't sit well with her co-workers, so they called the police. And suddenly there's a missing persons case on their hands. And the real mystery is who was using her phone. Someone had her phone in Denver over an hour away, making calls to six different people. Tonight, Melissa's mom will be on with us because mom and dad drove from Tennessee, where they're from, to Winter Park to aid in this investigation and to find their daughter. So you're going to hear all about that in a moment. First, let's start with BTK and his latest fit. I guess he's been pretty bored in prison for the last almost two decades. Who wouldn't be? You know, once your murderous rampage um, is discovered and you're put away for 10 consecutive life sentences for the 10 people you murdered, that you admitted to murdering, maybe you murdered more, I don't know. In any case, it turns out Dennis Rader has had a big dust-up in jail, freaking out on an artist, an artist he commissioned to paint a likeness of him in blood. Charming. I don't know how he thought he was going to get that likeness in blood through the prison gates, but that's what he did. He corresponded with this artist. We have the letter. In fact, I've got it right here. I'm going to show it to you in a little more clarity in just a moment. But it's weird, right, because there's, like, all this, like, Funny coding and weird stuff that Dennis, I, mean, I guess it's not unusual that Dennis Rader would write in code to his pen pals, but um, you're going to see it. You're going to hear it all in a moment. So the plan was um, to paint Dennis Rader in the blood of his female pen pal. And when the artist uh, requested of Dennis Rader some of his hair, so that he could incorporate it into the art, because that's what this artist does, makes it very realistic. His serial killer paintings are very realistic. Dennis Rader blew a gasket, went bananas, called off the whole project, said, no, we're done. I'm not sending you nothing. Uh, All right, then. The painting was done anyway. The blood was the blood of the artist. You're going to see it in a moment. You're going to get the firsthand account of what it was like dealing with Dennis Rader on an art project of a portrait of Dennis in blood. Uh, all of this sort of fits in right now because it's been nine days since the police went and dug up his former property in Kansas. 
Look how skinny he's getting, by the way. Just look at that picture. He's like a fraction of his former self. Um, and that is not uh, an optical illusion because his own daughter has gone face to face with him after 18 years and said he's emaciated. He's rotting. He's rotting away in prison. And the sheriffs and others who've gone face to face with him say the same thing, that he is a fraction of his former self withering away in prison. So nine days, uh, nine days ago in Park City, Kansas, the police go and they dig up his former home because they get a tip. There may be some trophies there. And they think the trophies may be related to a 16-year-old cheerleader who disappeared from Pawhuska, Oklahoma, not far away. Her name was Cynthia Kinney. She disappeared in June of 1976. Never, ever found. So they haven't solved Cynthia Kinney's case, but the sheriff who's on this case has said, I believe 100%, that it's Dennis Rader. And the materials they were able to dig up outside of Raider's home were in like a special little spider hole protected with shingles 18 inches under, uh, no, 16 to 18 inches under the, the earth. Um, they were able to find nylon stockings knotted up as though they had been used in some kind of binding. Other binding devices, uh, reports say chains, uh, trinkets and trophies and hobby items is what the sheriff told us. They're all being tested to find out if they connect at all to Cynthia Kinney or any of the other victims that are cold cases that might connect to Dennis Rader. So he was obviously in our sights in the last week as we've been reporting on this, but we had no idea that there was this whole art business going on with Dennis Rader where an artist was actually going to paint him in blood and had, you know, was making deals and corresponding back and forth about potentially getting some of Dennis Rader's hair. Well, that, uh, who knows why he went ballistic, but he'd written this letter and I'm going to show you the highlights in a moment where Dennis Rader says, okay, okay to the, this is the code he uses. It's (laughs) creepy. Okay. So a certain very special kind of sap okay to a very special kind of sap. It's uh, in reference to an artist saying that line, but that's the sap, the, the blood. Okay, and then here was the other connection that ended up being really fascinating. As we were investigating this, this artist, uh, making this deal with, with BTK, turns out he also has commissioned this work um, with, the, mm, it's odd, created and collaborated on a shrunken head of Charles Manson. And and the shrunken head of Charles Manson actually incorporates the real ashes of dead Charles Manson and real gray hair of of Charles Manson. I want to ask our control room if they can show the picture of the um, statue, like the sculpture. There it is. It's disturbing. And so I am sorry. It's not real. It's not a real person. This is a sculpture. So don't freak out. But it is kind of creepy. You can see the X on the forehead. You can see the, the blood. That's the real blood from the artist. Um, the gray hair that's at the top of your screen, that's Charles Manson's purported real hair. And the ashes of Charles Manson are incorporated into uh, his eyes in this uh, tiny head sculpture. You can see them with the vial tapping the ashes into the tiny head. And look how tiny the head is. I mean, it is really a shrunken head of Charles Manson. Um, so here's how it happened. Um, So Ryan Almighty is the artist, and he was pals with a very good friend of Charles Manson's named John Michael Jones. John Michael Jones was at the funeral 
of Charles Manson and got the ashes and shared them with this this artist. The artist not only uh, made art out of it, uh, paintings and a mask, but also a tattoo. And he tattooed the words Helter Skelter onto John Michael Jones. So then the artist, Ryan Almighty, collaborated with Terry Barr, who specializes in making shrunken heads, and the result is what you have on your screen. And Ryan Almighty, the artist, joins me now live. Um, Ryan, can you hear me okay? I can hear you great. Thanks for having me. Um, one little correction. Yeah. The Helter Skelter was not on John Michael Jones. John Michael Jones would not want Helter Skelter tattooed on him. John Michael Jones got a portrait of Charlie with the ashes incorporated. A guy named Patrick Booz got the uh, Helter Skelter. Thank I just you. want to say that just uh, out of respect for uh, John Michael Jones because he was genuinely close to Charles as a person, not as a boogeyman or personality. And I'm sure he would want nothing to do with the word helter-skelter and the whole bully OC. I appreciate that. I appreciate you correcting me because it's a lot of details and I am prone to, you oh, know, such a, a <laughs> such a rabbit hole to go down with the, the Raider it thing. It is. It is such a rabbit hole. So let's start there, Ryan. Like, what was it like dealing with Dennis Raider and corresponding with him? And I've got your, I've got the letter he sent to you. It's kind of nutty, but what do you make of yeah, it all? I, I kind of need a translator for that because I can't really muddle through exactly what he got to. It was actually a, a, a pen pal of his that was a mutual fan of, of him, his pen pal, and my artwork. So it was her suggestion, and she brought it up to him, uh, wanting to get that portrait done using her blood, which he agreed to. Um, I told her that, well, I would have to have him ask me directly. So he wrote me that letter that you have before you now. And I think he asked me to paint the portrait. <laughs> I mean, like I said, you, you've read that letter. It's kind of hard to, to get well, through. You know, let me put it up on the screen, Ryan, um, so that our audience can take a look at it. Because I, I must have taken half an hour to try to decipher it. It's moving fairly quickly. So for our audience that can't read so quickly, I will just kind of... Try to paraphrase some of it. First, at the top, there's that weird symbol, but I can tell you that it says um, EDCF, uh, which is El Dorado Correctional Facility, and then 2018, and El Dorado, um, or established uh, 05, which I believe is when he was incarcerated. Then I think it says the Kansas Pisces, but Kansas is with a C at the bottom of the emblem. Then it looks like it might be a Pisces fish hanging, which might be very BTK. And the whole section at the top has a notation on the left called entree. Uh, the things that are highlighted right now, I know they're coming up really quickly, but they were basically Dennis Rader's signature with the word OK and the date of the signature and two stars beside either side. And then he says, Dear Mr. Gillian, this is a follow-up letter in regards to, there's a name and I won't say it, We've, I think we should have X'd it out there, but this is the, the girl you're talking about, his pen pal, mm -hmm. request of the okay to use certain, a very special kind of sap. Yeah, uh, I'm sure he's blood by that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he said for artwork. Um, then he signs his name and says, okay. Hope it works out well. Me, if time, have a photo taken of Lynn work. Maybe, I'm not sure. Uh, d drop one to me. <laughs> it's odd. It's hard to, it's, it's really hard to, to read his writing for starters. But so when you received the letter, was that your, um, the genesis of you beginning to, to do this work that we're seeing on the screen right now? And it's, to be clear, it's your blood. It's not the Pen Pell's blood. It's not Raider's blood. It's your blood. That, that no, because um, when, when uh, he did write that, I responded to the letter, and I asked him, 
and I never in a million years would have thought he would have been offended by this, to send me some of his hair to put in the painting so there was a part of him in there as well as his pen pal. And for some reason, he was very offended by that. I never heard from him directly or talked to him on the phone. It was all through his, his pen pal, who ironically enough was married either to a retired policeman or a, a policeman. I know she was, her husband is a, a cop, which strangely enough. Um, but anyway, so she told me that he was very angry. Well, I told her that I was going to do the painting anyway because it would go well with that letter. And uh, and then she cut ties to me. I've never heard from her again. And, and of course, Dennis left on a sour note. But, hey, it is what it is. Well, I, I didn't. So, and, and by the way, you're, the audience should know, Ryan, he's not the first person that you have painted in blood. You have done a lot of serial killers in blood. Can you give me the list of the, the serial killers you've painted? Um, well, I mean, a lot of them are, are in my own blood, and then I'll frame them with a piece of memorabilia from the person, like a signature or something. But I've painted uh, uh, John Wayne Gacy, who I was pen pals with in my museum. I have quite a few pieces of his artwork. Um, Richard Ramirez, Ed Gein. Um, How about Dahmer? Mary Bell, uh, Jesse Pomeroy. I mean, a lot of them are just done, though, in my own blood. Not all of them that I have actual contact with. I was looking at the um, list. I, I, is it is Dahmer in there as well? Dahmer is in there. Um, I, I did it for a, a book project. Somebody was right there. They called it the Dahmer Files. Oh, I forget the artist's name off the top of my head, um, uh, the author. But anyway, uh, I contributed the artwork, and then I had a letter from uh, Dahmer that he had written to one of his pen pals, and I framed those together for my own private museum you know, to, to show off. So t- talk to me a little bit about the, the, the Shrunken Head project. I've got to be honest with you. It is not my cup of tea. Um, it is really creepy. <laughs> but I think it does what you intend what artists intend is to evoke emotion regardless of what the emotion is for me it was ah um and it was kind of scary looking and freaky looking and then i read more about it and it's like really controversial as well so talk to me about making this this shrunken head using the ashes of of charles manson in the eyes and the the gray hair of charles manson incorporated into the hair right well well terry barr uh actually ended up on my radar I went to a bar called the Golden Tiki in uh, Las Vegas, and it's just filled with celebrity shrunken heads, but they didn't say who made them. They were just everywhere, at least not that I saw. So I had to do a little research, and as it turned out, I actually had a shrunken head gaff that he made 10 years ago. It wasn't a celebrity one, but it's like, so I knew who he was, and I kind of found him through some internet research and got a hold of him, and then he did a, uh, a shrunken head of myself and my fiance, and I was just so impressed with his work and I, what I like to do with Charles Manson's ashes, Charlie was a friend of mine. He and I used to talk on the phone. Um, and uh, when I started doing the artwork of him, uh, you know, I did 10 paintings using his ashes after he passed away and uh, his hair in those paintings. And I, um, and I, I got to the point where I've done enough paintings where I like, if I see artists that do work that I like incorporating that, I want a whole collection of Charlie being used, making these memento mores, uh, using his remains. And I like to think in 50, 100 years when I'm gone, all the artists are gone, there's going to be these collections out there of, of pieces that have a little bit of Charlie Manson in it. And I get it. It's distasteful to some people. Uh, you know, the infamy uh, definitely evokes different emotions in different people. But um, 
it definitely does get let, an emotion. Get it does. Thoughts. And let me ask you just one question to wrap it up, I, because I think it's important. There, there'll be some people watching this who are very upset and they say, how is it you could celebrate these terrible people, mm-hmm. these poor victims and family members whose lives have been ever, forever destroyed? And here we are memorializing them with, with art and paintings and blood and ashes. And how do you, what would you answer them if they had the ability to face you through this program and say, Oh, oh, oh obviously, do I definitely don't condone any of the crimes or any of the violence. I'm not a violent person myself. Um, it's like anything else. It's like a true crime podcast or, or books written on there or any form of artwork or media. People are interested in it, and I'm interested in it. So that's my reason behind doing it. It's by no means condoning any of the crimes. As a matter of fact, it, it, it's terrible that, it, that crimes, war, anything dark gets that kind of attention. But the reality is it does. Yeah, and, I, I think uh, you make a good uh, point. Um, how how right. is it that anybody can watch a true crime documentary and at the same time complain about a piece of art um, that that right. you know creates the same the same thing? So I see your point. Thank sure. you for being on and sharing this bizarre story about BTK and then of course about the the Charlie Manson um, shrunken head too. It's all very odd, but uh, you you got you got your purpose fulfilled with me. You definitely evoked a lot of emotion. Ryan Almighty, thanks for being on. Thank you for having me. I do really appreciate the respectful interview, and, and thanks for showcasing what I do. Well, appreciate you being a guest tonight on the Banfield Show, and maybe we'll, we'll uh, have another opportunity to talk to you again soon. I All certainly right. hope so. Coming up next, uh, how much are you able to remember from a decade ago? I'm struggling with lunch, but there is a sheriff on Long Island who is hoping that sex workers in his jail can remember something, anything, about a Long Island serial killer suspect named Rex Heuerman. They say he dumped multiple bodies on Gilgo Beach and had a penchant for paid sex right up until he was cuffed and put in the cruiser. And now cops are asking any sex workers that are booked into their jails if they've ever been with Rex. And if so, what did he do to them? Wait until you hear what two of them have already described. The sheriff in charge joins me live with the details next. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Okay, calling all sex workers... Um, if you happen to be in the business in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Long Island, um, if you get booked into a jail, you're probably going to be shown a picture of Rex Heuerman. And you're probably going to be asked, do you know this guy? Have you done sexy business with him? Because this is the Long Island serial killer suspect. And he's been getting real busy with sex workers right up until he was arrested just a matter of weeks ago. Thing is, the police believe that he killed a bunch of sex workers and discarded them on Gilgo Beach. So far, he's charged with three. They think maybe he's responsible for four. And probably, they say, others on Gilgo Beach. So what's fascinating is that they're getting responses. Lots of responses. 
At least five sex workers who've been booked into jail have been shown that picture, asked that question, and said, oh, I know that guy. I've been with him. And the information is being classified as helpful. Two of the women who were asked, have you been with him, uh, done sex business with him? And the answer was yes. And what was it? What happened? What, what was it like? They classified or characterized their sex experiences with Rex Hurman as violent and aggressive. Violent and aggressive, they told police. They said he was big. And that's why it stood out. And when big guys, big Johns and clients get violent and aggressive, they remember. And the two sex workers who responded to the sheriff and the department um, employees that were doing this work, that's the answers they got. In fact, the actual group doing the work is called the Suffolk County Sheriff's Department Human Trafficking Unit. They've been conducting the interviews and showing the pictures. They've been doing this in conjunction with not just the Long Island Jail, uh, where you would think, you know, the sex workers were. No, they're doing it with the Nassau County Jail. They're doing it with Rikers Island, Suffolk County Jail. Anybody who's getting booked into those jails is getting shown that picture, women, um, and asked, have you been with this man? Did he purchase your sex services. I want to bring in Sheriff Errol Toulon Jr., the Suffolk County Sheriff. He is leading the charge in this investigation. This is such a great investigative tactic, Sheriff. I'm, I'm very impressed that you've done this coordination with these different jails. How is it going? Did I characterize it right coming in? Is there more to the story? I don't know. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. And we started our human trafficking unit in 2018, well before a task force was formed. And what we did was we were able to uh, speak to our law enforcement partners and also media accounts to see how we can formulate questions of sex workers coming in our facility. In 2022, when the uh, task force was created and we became a part of it, you know, we started to learn more about a potential suspect. And once we had identified Mr. Hurman, you know, we were able to interview several um, sex workers, not only in our custody, but started to work with sex workers that were not in our custody because not everyone uh, is arrested and see if any of them had any encounters with Mr. Hurman. Can you can you tell me what the word helpful means? Because the report is, is that five of the sex workers have given information about Rex Hurman that's been helpful. Two of them have said he was violent and aggressive with them. What other details do you have about their responses? So, you know, the women and we've only interviewed two that have stated that they may have had an encounter with Mr. Hurman. Uh, what we still have to do is vet their story because, you know, one at this point in time, there could be many women that say they had an encounter with him. And we're looking at dates, times, locations just to verify their story. And so it's very important for us to give this information to the task force as a whole for anyone that may uh, state that. You know, so we're still vetting the story of the two women in our custody that had said they may have had an encounter with Mr. Hurman. And what about the other three? Uh, because five in total have been, quote unquote, helpful. So the other three might have come through the task force from other means, not necessarily the anti-trafficking unit uh, within the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office. So let me ask you this. I want to kind of move from that to the other side of the investigation, and that is all of the material that was gleaned from Rex Hurman's house. Can you tell me some of the things that came from that house that were helpful in this investigation? 
You know, unfortunately, only because it's still an active investigation, I cannot talk about the items that were removed from his residence that may be part of a future investigation, which may help either this case or link him to, uh, you know, other um, sex workers that may have uh, been murdered. And so, you know, the task, task force as a whole is really just looking at everything that we all garner, whether it's state police, the FBI, the district attorney's office, or even the Suffolk County Police Department, including the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office, are putting together all types of evidence with, that we may be uh, uncovering to see if they're linked to Mr. Hureman, if they're linked to another person, or um, you know any crimes that may have been committed in Las Vegas or South Carolina. It's been about six weeks, I think just a little over six weeks since Hureman was arrested. And at that time, three of the Gilgo Beach murders uh, were being charged to him. A fourth is Maureen Brainerd Barnes. And the word was is that it's likely he's the chief suspect in it and that it's likely he's going to be charged in in Maureen Brainerd Barnes murder as well. Are we closer to seeing that happen? You know, I, I think as the task force progresses, we're trying to make sure, as we did with the first three that we were able to charge Mr. Hureman with, is that we have concrete evidence and we feel comfortable. You know, me as a sheriff and being part of this task force, feels very confident that the three uh, the three charges that Mr. Hureman is currently faced with is that he is the person that committed those murders. And so we want to be very, very clear and concrete when we present this evidence uh, to the courts that we have the correct person. But that fourth one, is it getting close? We're getting there. You're getting there. Okay, that means that Sheriff Errol Tulan, I'm going to have to have you back on again. Thank you for doing this tonight. I know you're a busy man, so taking the time at this time of night, um, much appreciated, sir. Thank you. You have a wonderful evening. You too. We'll, we'll see you again soon, I hope. All right, straight ahead. Um, it's a race against the clock to find a missing woman in Colorado. Her name is Melissa Witsit. She vanished on August the 13th. Take a good look. This is Melissa with dark hair. There's Melissa with blonde hair. Um, soon after she vanished, something strange happened. An unknown man made multiple calls from her phone. So what did he say? Who was he? And how might he be connected to Melissa's disappearance? Coming up after the break, I'll be joined by Melissa's mom. She's with me live next. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Melissa Witsit did what a lot of young people do these days. And when I say young, 34 years old to me is quite young. Um, go out to a ski resort to work. And Melissa Witsit decided to go to Park City and or Winter, Winter Park um, in Colorado. It's beautiful. It's a great resort and it's a great job. And by all accounts, I think she liked it there. Problem was, is that one day um, on August 13th, she didn't show up for work. So the coworkers thought that was weird, wasn't like her. They asked for a welfare check. She wasn't there. And suddenly... Melissa Witsit was on a flyer as a missing person. Melissa had come from Tennessee. This was a 
presumably a great summer job, maybe a great winter job too, because it's a ski resort. And so when she became officially missing person, they looked to see the normal signs, like did she use her debit card? No. Where's her phone? Well, that was weird, too, because suddenly it was like an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 20 minutes away in Denver. And there was a strange man who was using it, calling around multiple people, making phone calls to multiple people. So suddenly this became very mysterious. Melissa's parents drove from Tennessee all the way to Winter Park to start helping to find their daughter. And here we are at the end of August, weeks later, still no sign of Melissa. Cindy and Jerry Whitsett are kind enough to join me live on the program tonight. Thank you so much for being here. Can you both tell me what the police have told you so far in their investigation? Um, not a lot, actually. First, thank you for having us on. Um, they have told us that Melissa boarded a bus from Winter Park on Sunday morning and that she went to Denver. And we, uh, we don't know why. Um, you know, sometimes on her days off, she had gone with friends there. She'd gone shopping or she'd go for a hike or something, and she would always tell us. And we didn't talk to her on that particular day, that, and she didn't tell us if she was going to meet someone or, or why she would be um, going there on her own. So we, we don't know that. I, I had a lot of friends who worked in ski resorts growing up. I'm a big skier myself, and so I'm familiar with the culture of working at a ski resort. And certainly with Denver just an hour and 20 minutes away, it wouldn't be weird to go on a Sunday uh, with friends to Denver. What is strange is the phone calls that were made from her phone. And I think I read a report where it said there was a an unknown male on the phone. What do you know about that? Being that, how do we know it was a male on the phone making the calls? So, um, you know, the first thing we did was look at her phone and because obviously it was off, we couldn't contact her. So the first, she's on our account. So uh, the first thing we did was go pull the, the phone records and see when the last time the phone was used. And that's when we saw several numbers that we didn't recognize. And so we, we decided to just call them. So we called the, we called the number and uh, a, a male answered. And uh, we asked him, you know, about speaking with Melissa. And he, you know, he said he, he, never, he never spoke with Melissa. And so we said, you know, we find that odd because, you know, your phone was contacted by her phone. So somebody spoke to her. And he said, hang on a minute, let me look at my records. And he went back and looked and he said, oh, that phone did call me, but it was a, it was a guy that called me from that phone. It wasn't a female. It wasn't Melissa. Um, and so we inquired of him what that guy wanted. And he said he wanted a ride because he offers transport services around Denver. Um, and that's really all the information we got from him. We, we turned that information over to authorities, uh, his, the number that was called and, uh, and what the guy's name was. Had, had he, that unknown male, called that number six times or called around to various numbers to various different people six times? It was, it was actually, I, I think, four times that number had called. Three of them were, were listed as one minute, which, which could have meant they weren't very long at all. And then one of them was listed for two minutes. So that's, that's what we assume was when he had a conversation. So that would have been four or five calls. And then there was one more number that we didn't recognize uh, that we never could figure out who it was to. 
So I noticed on some of the pictures that Melissa has dark hair in some of the pictures, blonde hair in some of the pictures. Very, very different look. I mean, she really almost looks like two different people. Is that helpful and is that something that's getting out there so that if, in fact, she may have changed her look, uh, people would know? So the blonde picture, we were instructed by authorities. Um, We, you know, because we're in Tennessee and she was in Colorado, we were instructed that there may be some connections. That blonde picture is an older picture of Melissa. The dark hair is what she looked like when she went missing. Um, But we were instructed because there may be people that hadn't seen Melissa in a while. And we all know how easy it is for us ladies to change our hair color. So she loved doing that. And um, uh, so that's why we we tried to show all of those um, looks so that someone might recognize that picture. um, Just as instructed. Um, Cindy and Jerry, do do either of you know if she had any set twos with anyone, any arguments, any disputes with anyone, any new friends that she'd made that were, say, not particularly, um, you know, welcome in her life by the rest of her family. Were there any sort of red flags before she went missing that you've been able to share with the police? None. None. She she had just been there a few months, and she, by all accounts to us, she loved it there. She loved the people she was working with. She was happy. Um, so no, there was, we would know if there was someone I'm I'm confident that she was having an issue with, uh, before she went there, she had been in our home for the last four years. She had been with, um, with Jerry and I, and, um, so no, there was not anything like that. Well, I hope this is helpful. We're going to put uh, some phone numbers up on the screen right now for anyone who might be watching, who might have any information. And I always say this. No tip is too small. No detail is too small. The Denver police are 720-913-2000. And the Winter Park police are 970-722-7779. I always recommend our viewers take a screen grab. Just take a picture of your TV screen right now and hold that on your phone, especially if you're in the Colorado area, especially if you're in Winter Park or Denver Um, And you might have some connection or some information. Um, Cindy and Jerry, thank you for being on tonight. I'm just praying that you get the resolution that you're looking for and that maybe somehow someone watching tonight might have a tip that could lead to some kind of a a resolution here. Thank you for doing this. Uh, We just thank you for having us on. Our goal here, we're two weeks into this. um, And as you said, we drove out there because flights didn't work. And when we realized that Denver had two detectives in the missing persons department and no one was looking for our daughter, not one officer, we drove, we tried to get an appointment. We could not even get in the front door of the police department. I'm not outing them. I'm just saying that when we went combing the streets, we were alone doing that. And I know we're two weeks into it. We may be behind the paywall, so to speak, for, for Melissa, but this awareness and and thankful to you and other news media um hopefully it brings some awareness that there's some changes out there if it saves one life you know it's it's worth what we're doing that's our goal right now and uh we did it and you know we we're going to go back if we have to we're, we're not through we just well, keep you know, us- run a business and he works so we're just trying to regroup Keep us updated. Uh, We will stay on the story as well. And without question, um, 
bang down our door. We're here and we want to continue uh, listening to the details and finding out what the Denver police are doing. Thank you for the information. Do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Just heartbreaking. Cindy Witsit and Jerry Witsit looking for their daughter, Melissa. Um, coming up next, you know, uh, Buster hasn't spoken until now, but now Buster speaks. Alex Murdoch's oldest son, his fiercest defender, even after his dad was convicted of killing his mom and his brother, Buster is breaking his silence for the first time since that trial. Why he thinks his father is innocent and that the jury was rigged. And there's something else. He has an alibi for the night that Stephen Smith lost his life in 2015. And can you guess who the alibi is? That answer and Buster in his own words next. He took the stand in February in his father's murder trial. And then he never said another word. Not a peep. Buster Murdoch. And now he's talking. Alex Murdoch, his dad, was put away for life for killing his mother and his brother. And now Buster's talking about a lot of things, particularly where he was the night Stephen Smith was killed, because there's been all sorts of allegations he might have been involved in that. He says he has an alibi, about to tell you who the alibi is. He also says the jury in his father's trial was rigged. If you want to hear it, this is what he told Fox Nation. It's a show that's about to air in two days. Take a look. When you look back at this trial, they didn't find a murder weapon. They didn't find any bloody clothing. There were no witnesses. A lot of digital evidence. Yeah, crappy motive. You think it was a crappy motive? And yet, 12 jurors all agreed that your dad killed your mom and Paul. That's right. What do you think about that? I do not believe it was fair. Why? I was there for six weeks studying it, and I think it was a, a tilted table from the beginning. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the jurors felt that way prior to when they had to deliberate. It was predetermined in their minds prior to when they ever heard any shred of evidence that was given in that room. Did you ever go there and say, maybe it's possible that he did this? No, because I think that I hold a very unique perspective that nobody else in that courtroom ever held, and I know the love that I have witnessed. Okay, a couple other things that he said about the uh, claims from Stephen Smith's sister that Buster and uh, Stephen had a romantic relationship, and the claims from Stephen Smith's brother that... Uh, Maybe Buster was involved with the group that beat his brother. I never had anything to do with his murder, and I never had anything to do with him on a physical level of any regard, Buster said. And then when asked about, uh, when asked about the night that Stephen was killed, Fox News asks, where were you the night that Stephen Smith was killed? Buster says, I was at our Adisto Beach House. And they say, with your family? And he answers, with my mom and my brother, which means his alibis are both dead. Pretty fascinating stuff. All right, so that is Buster Murdoch finally breaking his silence on the Fox uh, Nation coming up in two nights. Still to come, everybody. Um, new development in a case that made headlines across the country. I'm not sure if you remember Sherry Papini, California woman who faked her own kidnapping, faked her own beating, branding, faked being thrown out of the side of the road, emaciated and battered. This like, was a true crime story in 2016 that was bonkers. But now Papini has been let out of prison. I'm going to tell you where she is and what she's doing now that she's starting a new life next.
Sherry Papini from Redding, California, kidnapped while jogging back in 2016. And then three weeks later, Thanksgiving Day, found alive, dumped on the side of a California road, chained, emaciated, beaten, shaven, branded. It was awful. She said two Hispanic women had held her captive. She gave quite a description, too, but nobody could ever find them because they didn't exist. She faked the whole thing so that she could hang out with her ex-boyfriend behind her husband's back. Then the whole thing unraveled. She was convicted and she spent, uh, well, she was sentenced to 18 months, but she only spent nine and she is out. She's out. She's out now, sprung from federal prison last week. As of this moment, she's at a halfway house, but she'll be sprung from there in October. And if Sherry's love affair cover up wasn't bad enough, she doubled down and insisted she was kidnapped, even collected more than $30,000 from the California Victim Compensation Board. Finally, the plea deal. She copped to lying about everything. Husband filed for divorce. Don't know if the boyfriend's still around. That's it for us. Almost next. Hey, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Tuesday. We're live. So what do you say? Let's get after it. As you probably know, Florida is bracing for... Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC. 